0: Before we make our way out of Season 1, we get to meet another of Rose's family members. Her sister Lily has come for a visit, but not all is what it seems. Recently losing her sight, Lily is first refusing before becoming overly accepting of assistance. With family, guilt, and feeling unsure as to what to do, will Rose move to Chicago to be Lily's caretaker? Will the rest of the ladies have a successful garage sale? Should they have just discussed layaway before trying to sell their precious items? Let's dig deep into our emotions and boxes of junk for blind ambitions. And for helpful information for anyone facing vision loss or if you're in the position of rose and aren't sure how to help a family member, we're also going to be having a conversation with Swava Natakumar from the American Council for the Blind. And she's gonna help us understand boundaries, how to help, and what she thinks about blind representation in the episode. We've got a lot to get into here, so let's get started. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing, no matter the misters that come and go, I hope you
1: know you'll all
0: In the most unusual of Lanai setups, we find Blanche sitting at a long table that's going hot dog style so no one has to have their back to the camera, while Dorothy is working at a never before seen barbecue as Sophia delivers her supplies. There's another woman at the table as well, but we haven't met her yet. Lily, as we quickly learn her name to be, is in an adorable pink and white dress. Across from her, Blanche is rocking her sexy, casual look of a yellow shirt and pants with a light polka-dotted cover-up denim shirt. Sophia is in a rarely seen pair of pants with a purple checkered top, and Dorothy is... dressed. I don't even know how to describe what she is wearing. I think it's a flowy red blouse, but then she has an apron for cooking which is kind of inspired by a potato sack, and it doesn't actually look like an apron. All of that while some scarves are backwards on her neck. It is an atrocity. But enough about that. Who the hell is this medium steak-having Lily? Sophia can't understand why they're cooking outside when back home that would have been considered something only an impoverished person would do. I think about that often when I go camping, like, we did all this to develop a society and conveniences and I'm abandoning it. Sure, it's nice to reconnect with nature and disconnect from technology, but I'm doing all this while people that are impoverished are living this lifestyle which they haven't chosen. Yeah, it is fun being me. Why do you ask? Rose arrives in a light blue dress with a short ruffled apron and is delighted by the smells coming from the barbecue. She sits next to Lily and they hold hands while Blanche shares stories of her memories of the barbecues back home and how she would spend them with the neighborhood triplets, always ending the night with an argument of who got her finger sauce and face butter. This nine and a half weeks inspired foodie foreplay has gotten Blanche all heated, so she makes her way to the kitchen to fetch the lemonade. She's so hot and bothered, it wouldn't be surprising if she took the opportunity to pour some of the lemonade down her shirt while she was at it. Once again, the writers have used exposition perfectly, dropping us into a situation, trusting our ability to figure out what is going on, instead of wasting time with proper introductions or a backstory as to who Lily is. Rose and Lily just start talking about the camping trips they took as children, and right away we figure it out. Lily is Rose's sister. How sweet, two flower names, and how coincidental, two lilies in the house, but Water Lily is busy in the kitchen with the lemonade. That's an inside joke. You'll get it later. As I watched the episode, I couldn't help but wonder, sure, flower names are common, but was the duo of Lily and Rose an inspiration for Charlotte Goldenblatt's Little Girls on Sex in the City? Was it all in honor of the Golden Girls that came before them? Before we find out more about who Lily is, let's find out more about who Lily is. Lily is being played by theater and television star Polly Holiday. Polly had a few small roles in the 70s before landing the role of Flo on the television series Alice.
1: I'll tell you why I kiss my grand!
0: <laughs> Sassy, gum-smacking Flo was so loved, she even got her own spin-off series, which sadly only lasted one season, ending in 1980. But don't fret for Flo. Polly went on to have roles in Gremlins, was a series regular on Home Improvement. She was also in The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Stick It. I understand that she was a recognizable face for the time, but Polly's Alabama-born accent always seemed a little too strong for me for her to be portraying someone from St. Olaf. Coco. Hey, girl. (laughs) Hi, Coco. You said that you actually—I didn't watch Alice. You watched Alice. You
2: got to kiss my grits, baby. Hey,
1: mister, you forgot
0: something. You forgot to kiss my grits. Can you give the listeners, like, a of what you remember, just a mild synopsis? I know it's based on Alice, the main girl who becomes a widow and then, like, runs a diner or something.
2: Yeah, you know, since we've talked, I think that... I don't know if I watched Alice or just Flo's diner. Mm. Is Does Alice take place in a diner? Yes. Then I've definitely seen both. Okay. I feel like it's a kind of a... Depressing set. Yeah, I always a, thought that too. As a kid, I, I it kind of bummed me out.
0: Well, because she had so her hair is all like down and lovely and golden girls, but on that she had it was kind of up, right? It was yeah. in like a little not a beehive, but just
2: yeah, a big ball.
0: Yeah, diner diner worker, <laughs> tall yeah. hair. I
2: didn't I didn't recognize her from that until yeah. you told me who that was. I rec- I knew who, that she was someone, but then um, yeah, it was it was cool to see her do something some other role and I don't, kiss I don't know my grits. Else. That was yeah.
0: like her, like. That was like her Buzz fonds. off? Yeah. Okay. Who's Buzz off? <laughs> Kiss my grand. Kiss my Kiss <laughs> my As the ladies are sharing their stories of camping, Lily explains that as children, Mr. Lindstrom would pack the kids in the car, drive around for a while, only to end up in the field behind the family's barn, which is pretty brilliant, really. The kids get to think they're off on a big adventure, while you know that if you need anything, your house is right around the corner which is really nice for bathrooming. Now that we've met Rose's mother, her daughter, and now her sister, it's becoming more apparent that perhaps Rose is the simplest of simpletons from St. Olaf, especially since Rose was learning in that moment that her pappy had tricked her all those times. Blanche is back with the lemonade, and Sophia is the first to request some. She needs it as she is sweating like a horse, which might warrant a trip to the hospital as horses, when worked hard or in excessive heat, can sweat up to four gallons an hour. Lily happily offers to get the lemonade for Sophia, and that's when we learn there's more going on than just a family visit. As Lily starts to feel around the serving tray Blanche brought the lemonade out on, it's clear Lily has vision issues. She goes on to explain that she lost her vision six months ago, and she has had to learn how to do everything, so she needs to be able to pour the drinks independently. Trying to be supportive, but kind of giving us an oh boy, is Dorothy, who shares that she did some teaching at a school for the blind, and she was so impressed with all the things they can accomplish. Well, they are people, Dot. While this was just some poor wording, it would have been much more inclusive to say it was so amazing to see all the technology and resources used to help the sight impaired and so they can live and work independently or something like that. You don't have to differentiate with a they. Being that Lily is older, she went to a school like that, but she didn't enjoy it. Going back to what I wish Dorothy had said, I'm guessing back in the 80s, there wasn't a lot of technology used to help people with vision issues. While it wasn't the 1950s when a blind person might have just been shipped off to an institution, there was still a lot of misunderstanding as to the capability of any differently abled person. Only looking to be in her 50s, Lily has had quite the life already. She remains the 100-meter dash record holder for her high school, she served three terms on the city council, and she was the first female pilot in St. Olaf. Cheers to Lily for her badass life. Blanche isn't celebrating how rad the gal across the table is, though. She's celebrating their commonality of her having a license and Blanche having had a pilot. Florida isn't home to a space and aviation museum, but Lakeland, Florida is home to the Florida Air Museum. There is where you would find the retired X-15, which was a hypersonic rocket-powered plane used in the Air Force. Blanche's bed not included.
2: When I was in Florida, I went to a aviation museum. It was pretty cool.
0: Not to cancel out your coolness, Lily, but it was actually Florence treetops Kleigensmith, who was the first woman in Minnesota to get her pilot's license. I know that's not as specific as St. Olaf, but that's as close as we're getting. According to InFlightTraining.com, Florence was born in 1904, getting her license in 1928. She became a stunt pilot, earning her treetop nickname, and went on to help found the 99s, which is a still-active organization of female pilots. She set a record of flying for over four hours doing loops. 1,078 of them, actually. From records to racing, she did well until her plane crashed and she went with it in 1932. So cheers to you, Florence. Thank you for all of your glass ceiling shattering. Could you imagine doing a 1,000 loops in a plane? I would perish.
2: Sometimes I get really scared when I spin the dog around too much. (laughs)
0: She's going to get brain damage. Further. In an attempt to entertain her visiting sister, Rose offers to take her to a concert. But Lily is not interested. It's St. Elsewhere Night. Premiering in 1982, St. Elsewhere was kind of the original Grey's Anatomy. With a cast of mostly unknowns at the time, many of the series' stars went on to become household names, like Ed Bagley Jr., Howie Mandel, Mark Harmon, and Denzel Washington. Now, children, you may be asking yourself, why can't she go to the concert and then come home and watch her program? Well, that's because she was living in the darkest of times. Let me take you back. It was 1986. I was three, Coco was seven. We were both just a couple of idiots wandering around in diapers. Our televisions were thick with tubes and had screens not much larger than an iPad. Remotes weren't common and I can recall walking up to the TV to turn the dial for volume or to pick one of the 12 channels to watch. There was no internet, no DVR, no streaming services. So while older generations may have had their war heroes, are we not our own heroes for surviving such inconvenience? The writers use Blanche really well in this episode as kind of the blunt one that is asking all the questions that maybe we would want to ask, but wouldn't want to sound rude or uninformed. So she asks Lily about watching TV. She does watch it still, but for her it's more like a radio show. Now, children, you may be asking yourself, radio show? Well, that's when you have... Providing information that may change Lily's interest in staying home, Sophia shares that their TV sucks and it shows two shows at once. This led Sophia to actually think that Benson, the titular character from the sitcom about a butler starring Robert Guillaume that ran for seven seasons and was actually coming to an end only two weeks after this episode was airing, and Miss Ellie Ewing, the lead character on the long-running drama Dallas, were having an affair. Although with how TVs used static back then, I can't imagine the picture quality was any better than that of the dirty channels my grandparents' TV used to get. These ladies and their janky roof. No, they're not getting it replaced. That'll come later. But for now, the house is saving up money to repair the roof and repave the driveway. That never has very many cars in it, and there should be three. How do they decide who gets the garage and who gets the driveway? Anyway, It's those expenses that are keeping Sophia from getting a new, properly working television. Sophia gives us an O boy only because of who she references next. Frustrated she won't be able to bond with her friends after missing a show, she asks, what will I do when Cosby is on? That's it for the oh boy, just having to hear and reference his name. She has a good point though, Cosby was beating out the ladies. According to Nielsen ratings from that time, over half the televisions that were turned on during Cosby's airtime were tuned into that show. Sorry, Dorothy, sitting in the driveway waiting for an amusing black family to pass by just won't cut it and gives us a little bit of an oh boy on its own. It's not like that's all the Cosby show was, Dorothy. Is this another they moment? Rose has an idea. Sell the piece of junk not really working television and put that money towards a new one but a very valid question is asked who's gonna buy actual garbage lily chimes in to share that once she moved out of her house and into an apartment we can deduce by her tone that this was due to her vision loss she had a garage sale and made all sorts of money although she isn't sure just how much she got as she couldn't see the difference between the bills Nowadays, there are actual currency detection devices to assist those with vision impairments, which is a really cool use of technology. Jeff Bezos! I'm sorry, he just landed as I'm writing this, and I'm still pretty upset about it. This story has inspired Blanche. Let's have a garage sale. Estate, rummage, yard, garage, whatever you want to call it, Small sales of personal items in front of homes has been around since the 1950s, but they actually started as roomage sales at shipyards when they had unclaimed cargo. The success of those sales led to sales at smaller venues like churches before becoming the strange tradition we celebrate to this day. Hopefully that little history lesson helps Rose understand why it's called a garage sale even though it's the location not the item for sale. Her stupid to Sophia question is why Sophia leans into Blanche. Make sure the one who can't see is the one who makes the change. Even without sight, she'll do a better job. I grew up with my Grammy and mom, so I spent every weekend of my childhood at yard sales. I usually enjoyed them, but it wouldn't take long for me to get carsick. Yeah, I'm a carsick kid. So when the days came that I was old enough to stay home and my mom would come home and surprise me with a trinket, it was the best of both worlds. I have gone sailing recently. It was nice. It kind of felt like the safest form of shopping. And while I try to recycle, reduce, reuse, I still kind of struggle with loving the idea of someone else's stuff. Coco, where do your feelings fall when it comes to garage sales? And do you call it garage or yard or something else?
2: I call them garage sales. And I like like a garage sale, but I don't really want to go to one. I definitely don't want to have one at my home. <laughs> Every time I think of a of a garage sale, you're just inviting anyone in the world to see the kind of things that you own.
0: <laughs> right. It's very, it's like strangely intimate.
2: It's incredibly intimate. And it seems to me a huge worry incredibly unsafe.
0: Yeah. Especially people when they have like their garages open and you can see in and you see all the nice stuff like, oh, you have a sea Yeah. And you have, a. it's like. Are you just waiting to get burgled?
2: I don't like having the windows, like the the, sh- the curtains open, the shades up. I like no one to know <laughs> anything that's happening. Not that there's anything happening, but I don't want anyone to...
0: You're a private guy.
2: Uh, thank you. Yes, that's a better way to say it, a non-creepy <laughs> way. I'm a private person.
0: I want to live in a dark cave.
2: And never be observed by others. <laughs> I can do my dark deeds. No, but you went to a garage sale. You went to a garage sale like a month ago, I think, or Mm -hmm. two, and you you brought back a couple of items. One of which is going to be life changing, and the other one is like the coolest little cowboy boot lamp I've ever had in my life. Yeah, that's the first one too, but it's great.
0: Wait, what's the life changing thing?
2: The teeter. Oh yeah, (laughs) the spine lengthener teeter.
0: (laughs) That's right. I know that thing feels so good. Gotta get on that, baby. Into the living room and into the evening we go. We're living in some serious sitcom timing here as everyone is dressed in the same clothing and going through the things they've compiled for the garage sale. That means they finished their barbecue, went inside, went through all of their belongings, and boxed them up, all before midnight cheesecake, Oreo, and orange juice time. Sometimes we just have to let things be in our Golden Girls world. Sure, something doesn't make sense. But it is the carrier that gets us to the punchline so we have to just let it be like how dorothy reaches down into a box to find the doll that she got on her 10th birthday did sophia have it and bring it out if you had had it wouldn't you have known it was in the box you're going through why are you still wearing that apron thing sure the doll's placement doesn't make sense but that's okay because as dorothy describes it it's old the hair is falling out the clothes are all worn she smells like mothballs Sophia walks behind her and can only assume Dorothy is talking about her. That's why she defensively points out, Well, I'm not Anne-Margaret, but I'm still your mother, so watch your mouth. Oh, Anne-Margaret, where do we begin? For starters, yes, Anne-Margaret is the antithesis of everything Dorothy just listed off. Born in Sweden in 1941, Anne-Margaret joins the likes of Madonna and Cher in that she is known only by her first name. Yes, it's hyphenated, but it still counts. She did do some singing, but she is far and away more known for her acting. She got her start alongside Betty Davis before making it big in the musicals State Fair and Bye Bye Birdie. Only three roles into her career, Anne Margaret was so famous she was given a character and guest spot on The Flintstones as Anne Margrock. That was followed up with working and singing with Elvis Presley in Viva Las Vegas. We'll cut out of here a
2: little bit. Uh, um, one condition, now the
0: kids here have been expecting you to do something, so if you don't wanna dance, sing. I know you can do that.
2: Okay, but then we cut out, right?
0: Right. She made movie after movie through the 60s and 70s, playing the classic bombshell she was known as. In the 1990s, she shifted her career, making another splash in grumpy and grumpier old men.
1: It looks like Chucks. Taking the skin boat to Tuna Town.
0: Still acting to this day, she won an Emmy in 2010 for her guest spot on Law and Order: SVU.
2: Anne Margaret is one of the most attractive people that I've ever seen in my entire life, and I it it never wears off. When I see Anne Margaret in like a clip from Bye Bye Birdie or something, mm-hmm. my God. <laughs> Even when I was a boy and Grumpy Old Men came out, I was like, this is the hottest older woman I've ever seen. And I didn't, I didn't know who she was even at the time. Maybe right. she was famous, but I didn't know why. And I was just like, why am I so horny for this granny?
0: I mean, I know I said she's most known for her acting, but let's be honest, it really was her looks. As Sophia leaves for the kitchen, Blanche arrives out of the hallway, and the audience's cheers nearly blow out the speakers. Blanche has found the outfit she wore to Woodstock. No, not the culturally formative, musically transformative music festival that was held in Woodstock, New York, August 15th through 18th in the Summer of Love, 1969, but she wore it to the film Woodstock, which documented the music festival. The outfit, garnering so much adoration, is that of a 30-something-year-old Blanche, a light skirt with dark brown stripes. It's not quite checkered or plaid, but it isn't not those things either. It's accompanied with a purple button-up shirt with a huge collar, a macrame long vest, perfectly plastic-looking white boots, and for some reason, a wig. It's a shoulder-length wig with two bows on the sides of her bangs. But with how Blanche's hair naturally is, it kind of looks like it was only a wig from the ears down. No matter, she's so excited to have found the outfit because it's so special to her. She and George went to the movie, listened to the music from the show with performers like Bob Dylan and Richie Havens, who opened the show, before they went home to make Love in the Mud, just like those dirty hippies did back in 69. Nice. Dorothy jokes that the 60s were a strange time for everyone, which they were, but the Woodstock film wasn't released until 1970, so I guess all times have been strange for Blanche. Side note, she looks so dang cute here, you can totally picture her as the troublemaking schoolgirl she always talks about from her Georgia stories. It's now Rose's turn to find a random treasure in her garage sale box. This time, it's candlesticks that belong to her mom. Without asking her housemates if the candlesticks can go on the alcove table that has taken the place of where creepy Sophia sat in the dark last week, Lily grabs them and starts to take them there. Much like how excessive Rose was with the coddling of her mother, those same instincts are kicking in when dealing with her sister. Chasing her through the house, she's trying to get her cane, but Lily refuses, claiming to have memorized the house the day before. But she didn't memorize it with all the garage sale crap all over the place, so Rose rushes to move things out of her path. Lily makes it to the alcove and puts the candlesticks on the table. Sophia is back from the kitchen, and upon laying eyes on Blanche in her getup, she asks, who invited Gidget?" Much like Anne margaret Gidget was a classic 1950s, 1960s bombshell, but in a much safer, less sexualized way. Played by Sandra Dee, which is who the girls mock Olivia Newton-John for looking and acting like in Greece, just to give you an idea of Sandra Dee's aesthetic, Gidget was an all-American girl just living her tiny-waisted, blonde-haired life. And through the six movies in her franchise, she lived her life all over the place. At the beach, in Hawaii, Rome... In 1965, the popularity of the films led to one season of a Gidget TV show. And with the outfit Blanche has on, she would fit right in to any of the movies. Feeling chilly, Lily starts to make her way to a bedroom. I'm guessing she's staying with Rose to get a sweater. It's, well, I don't know what this moment is. It's kind of funny. It's sad. And I do feel different about it after we watched it this morning, Coco. Because here's a woman who's lost her sight, and she's trying to, like, prove that she's done all these really intense things she's been in politics she has her pilot's license she's confident but in that same moment the gals are rushing to move all the boxes out of her path so it's kind of like she doesn't need help but she clearly does need help cutting to the kitchen we see well first and foremost that our lobster pan is back we're back in the right timeline again yay We also see that Lily is cooking bacon on the stove, using her hands to guide her through the kitchen and the cooking process. When she walks away to get something from the fridge, the bacon that was hanging over the side of the pan causes a grease fire. It's not huge or out of control, but it's still very scary, let alone if you couldn't see how big or controlled the fire was, that would be terrifying. Polly's acting is great here. It's clear she hears the fire start, so she rushes back to the pan. Holding her hand over it, she quickly realizes that it is a fire. She's a very believable, vision-impaired person. Realizing she's in trouble, Lily screams out for Rose, who, along with Blanche, come running in. Rose is re-wearing one of my favorite dresses of hers, the gray one with the pink flowers, the pink belt, and pink collar, and she runs to the cabinet under the stove to pull out the fire extinguisher, while Blanche, also re-wearing a jam of a pink sweatsuit outfit with heels, pulls Lily out of danger and uses a soft, calm, reassuring voice, telling her it's all right. Great crisis work, ladies. One managing the person, one managing the situation. Gold stars all around. And a quick little props to the props department here. Unlike some shows where they use fire and you can see the actual line where the gas is running or the flames look too staged, this one looks really real. And when Rose uses the fire extinguisher, it's nothing more than one of those keyboard cleaning jars of air and the fire is turned out. Hearing the commotion, Dorothy comes running in with a look and voice of concern. Rose answers that there was just a little accident, but everyone's okay. Now, no one is perfect, not even our ladies. They can have their bad days too, like Dorothy when she's sick, but how Blanche reacts in this moment is kind of like a punishable offense. Scared and shaken, Lily, in her stunning white pants, purple button-up, and green cardigan, all held together with a tiny purple fashion belt, starts to apologize as Blanche drops her arms while saying, we didn't have an accident, Lily had the accident. As if Dorothy was going to judge Blanche or something? Blanche's face is way harsh as Lily continues to apologize. It doesn't matter. Blanche's southern charms, as we'll call them, are starting to come out. If you aren't used to the stove, then I guess you shouldn't have been cooking on it. Well, geez, Blanche, she isn't a child. Damn. Lily's outfit
2: was clearly an homage to Dorothy's Riddler's Revenge (laughs) get up from a couple weeks ago.
0: Yeah, that'd be great to see her in her purple green Christmas illuminated thing next to Lily. It's almost like the runway version and then the everyday version.
2: Yes, the kind, yeah, the one you'd get at Target and the one you'd see, yeah, in (laughs) Milan.
0: The one that is worn to the Met Gala and the one that I wore to a work meeting. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just big into Riddler.
1: So well, hi, it's me. I my name is Swada Nanda Kumar. I work for the American, American Council of the Blind. Um, we are a national nonprofit organization. We are made of members of fully sighted, blind, and visual virgin, impaired members, and um, we work for the betterment of people people, people, people who are blind and visually impaired. So yeah,
0: wonderful. Thank you. So before we get into the details of the episode, I would like to start with terminology. When talking about someone who has vision issues or vision loss, what is the most inclusive language we can use? And is blind still an acceptable term?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan of not, you know, of like, kind of calling it what, what it is, so um and I know a lot. I know a lot, a lot of people in the in the community also feel 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 the way feel that way. So um, yeah, just call it like it is. Blind blind visually impaired. Yeah, don't screw the issue. So
0: okay, that's great to know because I know a lot of people. Uh, we want to be inclusive, and so it's kind of like, oh, can I use that word anymore? I'm not sure. <laughs> so it's good to know that we can move with that terminology. So in today's episode, Rose is asked by her sister, who has just lost her sight, to move home with her to take care of her, but that's not beneficial for her or the healthiest option for either either of them. If someone has a family member or a loved one who's coping with vision impairment, what are some actions they can take that supports their loved one while also maintaining their personal boundaries?
1: So... Um, it's kind of important here to understand, like the episode said, um, that blind people and people who are losing, losing vision um can do things by themselves and can be independent. They should have the right should have the right tools and the right support. Just the idea of like having some number of support, but not like be overbearing and um realizing that it might take some time to them to get used to it and for them to um develop develop their skills. So just like yeah just maintaining boundaries and saying like what what you will do what you want to which it's a big thing um um the episode like Lily asked for lots of water and the sister of her name is like um you know you know the house you can do you can do yourself so kind of make making, making sure that they that they can and they know that they can um do things for themselves
0: It sounds like the biggest piece of that which we saw in the show and you just referenced. The biggest part of that would be communication. Communicating not only your needs as maybe the person with the vision issues, but also communicating your boundaries as the caregiver.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also important. To, it's also important to um, note that just because they're um, they're going through this doesn't mean doesn't mean they have to um, baby, baby them or have to. Um, Talk down to them. You can talk to them as norm- normally, and you talk to them like their person as well. So just kind of being supportive, and also being um firm, firm as well is kind of a big thing. So yeah.
0: We see in this episode that Lily is pretty emotional and fearful in regards to her new lifestyle after losing her sight. If someone is dealing with vision loss, be it either from a slow development or a sudden onset what are some of those initial steps they can take in finding that help and support that they might need?
1: Yeah. So, um, it's important to understand that Lily's re- reaction to her vision loss is very, um, normal. And it's very much like, you need, know, it's very much appreciated that, um, she's going through the process of grief. She's going through that, um, that stage where she's upset and, and angry world, but, um, it's important that she's not alone in her in her journey. Um, like as ACB, um we have a plethora of members of varying um visual abilities and varying um and stages stages of vision loss and we have um resources for them and we have um a community that's willing to welcome willing to welcome them and willing to um give support and be there for them. Um they can also um like every state in the US has a department. Of rehabilitation, rehabilitation 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 services, so um, reaching out to reaching out to the state department, reaching out to their um, we re- out reaching out to their um state health and health health services um, it's a big step because they can um provide canes, they can provide all kinds of support, um, training, kind of things like that. You can also reach out to us and to AFB and to other um, land organizations like we're here to help and we're, and we're here to like um support even yeah we're all, we're all around to um make sure you can be independent again so so even if someone
0: in rose's position who maybe has that boundary to to not help out of her comfort zone she can still help with finding the resources through organizations like yours
1: yeah and um, also through a through state as well the state has um counselors they have um they have kind of instructors that are, and they have, like, um, resources for, like, for um blind programs or for blindness training skills, schools and all that, so, yeah, reaching out to them and to us as well, we can help as well, so, yeah, there are, there are places, places they can go, so we're not alone. What's something
0: that you wish sighted people knew or thought of when they were either talking about or interacting with or maybe representing a non-sighted person?
1: For me this one the the comes up first is um kind of real realizing that we are people that we can do things for ourselves that we can um like I remember um like I remember people like would, would ask the person next to me like what what does what does she need or what what does she want or like mm. help her so like and recognizing that we are people and we can fund ourselves we can um that even though we are blind and bi we can still um we're still people and we're still, like, needed in places and we still um, can't participate fully to, extent, to other people's extent. So, yeah, yeah i so just, like, totally. realizing that we are people and that we um, need to be rep- representative, rep- representative in, in media and in um our society as people who are, people are blind and prepared. Do you have
0: any additional message for anyone listening that might be in a similar situation as the sisters where you've got someone torn about helping and you've got someone who's losing their sight. There might be people listening on either side of that spectrum. Do you have any kind of overall message that you'd like to share?
1: I just say again, like you're not, you're not alone. You have community, you have people who are willing, willing and able to help you willing, willing to support you no matter how, um, or, um, kind of, no matter how much you want them to be there, how much you need, there are, there are ways to, um, cope, and there are ways to, um, yeah, or to, like, and there are ways to, to, um, get the help you need to support yourself, and, um, like, um, the episode on Lily went to school, the, the blindness tra- training school, like, um, there are places, places like that that will help you, um, be independent you a happy your independence back um so just being there for your um loved ones is is good is a big thing as well um yeah parent support um and rec- re- recognize, recognizing as the um characters in the show like recognizing that that they can do that that we can and do everything we, we sort of minds to um might not might not might not as drive but we can still do Kind of be our as well. So there weren't like it really kind of um, showed that we can that blind people, uh, blind VIP yeah, people can um, still function and still be and still do everything. And still do everything, Just they just need to if you training of support to do so. So,
0: so you felt the show overall really kind of portrayed, or or Lily kind of portrayed her vision loss in a
1: pretty realistic way. Yeah, um, oh, do you cool. have a chance to know if the if the, if the actress was B.I. or blind? She or? was
0: not. Mm-mm.
1: Oh, that's a problem. <laughs> I,
0: yeah, this was the 80s. So. <laughs> 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 yeah, she, she portrayed it really well, but it was still the 80s where that just wasn't the case, you know, where you would actually seek out the actor that had uh, anything related to what you're actually filming. So unfortunately, uh, no, she was not, but... <laughs> um, yeah but so that's really interesting to know that um, from your perspective that you felt like it was handled well because you know I, I I cover each episode and I, I hit on those jokes where it's like oh that did not age well that could not air today you know or that wouldn't <laughs> be written today mm-hmm. um, so that's interesting because there's definitely a couple moments like um, when Blanche is at the table in the beginning and they're talking and um, Lily says that she wants to watch a TV show and then Blanche is kind of really quick to be like, Oh, you watch TV. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, So I, and I felt like that was kind of real because there are those moments where people uh, either get nervous or they're uninformed or for some reason, they just aren't sure what to ask or how to ask. So I thought that was kind of real where it's just like, Oh, you can watch TV, you know, (laughs) instead of, uh, instead of like asking, you know, Oh, how do you watch TV or, or, why you need to even ask it at all especially nowadays with
1: yeah. all the technology we have so yeah and i i think i'm also like um it's okay to ask those, It's okay to ask those questions it's, it's okay to like not be it's okay to not know things but um never quite assume, never assume that we that we don't do things so mm. so it's better to ask than to just decide
0: for you obviously like yeah. anyone would feel mm mm-hmm. mhm Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was a very enjoyable conversation. I'm excited to put it in the episode. And uh, I was really excited to hear your perspective on all of this. So I appreciate it so much.
1: Yeah, great. That was was fun. Thanks. That's
0: awesome. There's actually another episode uh, regarding vision loss, uh, but it's not for a few seasons. But I hope to reach out to you again and we can have another conversation. Oh, thanks. All right. Great. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. Me too. Bye. Bye. Your heart aches for Lily in this scene. Not only does she feel horrible and she's now ruined her breakfast, she isn't in her home. It's not like she can just storm off. You can feel her, not helplessness, but embarrassment. You just want to reach the TV, give her a hug, hold her hand and slap Blanche as you make your way into the living room. Dorothy and Blanche are acting like they're coming from a place of concern when they start to talk about the help they feel Lily needs, but it's coming off as more of a frustration or annoyance. An emotional Rose feels helpless and doesn't know what more she can do for her sister. The girls clarify, we don't mean what you need to do, but what she needs to do, which is to get support and perhaps go back to that school which could help her learn to do things on her own. Rose pushes back, but she hated that school and she's such an independent person. Dorothy makes a great point. There's a difference between being independent in theory and capability. I consider myself a very independent person. However, I'm frequently a very poor person, so I might need to ask my parents for financial support. So in my heart, I'm independent. In my wallet, not so much. Same goes for Lily. She is a city council member and the first female pilot independent queen, but she isn't at that point in her vision loss where she can truly be independent. Now that some time has passed, we see that Rose's room has gotten a makeover from earlier in the season. Nothing major, that hideous wallpaper is still there, just a few newer, nicer chairs because there weren't enough of them before, and a new bed cover, bringing in those greens instead of all the yellows. Thank goodness. Checking in on her sister, Lily brushes off the fire. She's been getting into trouble like that since she was a toddler, so it's no big deal. It comes with the territory of being a badass. She's the tough one, and Rose is the sensitive one so sensitive she was worried about the puppy she had as a kid because its paws were so large and the other dogs pointed and barked at it. Lily confirms, yes, everyone pointed. You put that poor dog in booties and a bonnet. Oh, Rosie, come here. I have a costume idea for you. Taking the conversation in a serious direction, Rose opens up about her concern for her sister. Even though she can't see her, Lily knows Rose is pouting. It's what she does. She worries. She pouts. Rose begins her come-to-Jesus meeting, saying Lily needs help, but she won't hear it. She's independent, and that's it. But this is different. This isn't that you're adventuring out on your own. You've developed a condition that has made you differently abled, and you need to accept that while learning this new version of your life. With an emotional pause, Lily goes over to the bed where she's laid a dress down. Her voice shaking, she picks up the dress and shows it to Rose, explaining that it's her favorite and it's her favorite because it's the only one she remembers. She is understandably angry and frustrated that her life as she knew it is gone, and she has to adapt to her life as it is now, and she doesn't want to. Finding an inner strength that comes from a sister's love, Rose stands in front of Lily and is letting her have it. You have to face facts and come to terms with reality. Being alone isn't an option, not right now at least. Lily grabs Rose and sits her on the bed next to her. This moment really deserved award nominations, in my opinion. Lily's vision impairment isn't being portrayed as a pity party or as someone that should be locked in a hospital. It's that she's a person that has had something dramatically change her life. You could exchange her sight issues with a change in mobility, hearing, anything that disrupts your life. And you can hear in her voice that it isn't the loss of vision. It's the loss of life that she so fiercely loved and lived. A loss she's grieving and struggling with coming to terms with. A loss of hope that you have any control of something in your life that you can't do anything about. When Lily finally opens up through her tears, she says that basically Rose is right, and that's the whole reason she came to Miami. She knows she needs help, and she's there to ask Rose to come back home with her to be a caregiver. But what can Rose say? Here she was nearly yelling at her sister to get help, then her sobbing sister is begging for her to give up her life in Miami to be that help. Here's where we get into obligation, guilt, and boundaries. After the sisters hugged and cried it out, Rose ended up in the kitchen talking to Dorothy and Blanche about what she plans to do, which is to move to Chicago to take care of Lily. Blanche and Dorothy are on the same page here, which is a different one than what Rose is on. They don't see how her giving up her life to care for her sister is helpful to either of them. If she isn't teaching her sister the skills of independence, how will she ever become so? If she's saying she has to do it because Lily always took care of her, is there a desire to help, or is it only because she feels obligated? Who does that serve? To help Rose with her decision-making and to show her how relatable it is to do something out of guilt, Blanche starts with one of her St. Olaf but in Georgia stories. George had gone to Korea for the war, and while Dorothy's war effort was in the back of a Studebaker, Blanche's was at a factory making water canteens. She had envisioned that the canteen she was making would find its way to George, somehow reconnecting them. More importantly, she needed work done on her teeth, and that company had a great dental plan. After she developed a platonic, flirtatious relationship with a co-worker, wherein they hung out, went to the movies, Blanche was told she could never see Andrew, that co-worker, after George accused her of being unfaithful. I'm pretty sure Blanche's description of Korea being a God-forsaken land where people didn't even believe in Jesus is an oh boy. It seemed oddly placed, like maybe they wanted it to get a laugh, but it just came off as Blanche being Blanche. So because of George's jealousy and lack of trust in Blanche, fun, she was told she couldn't see her wonderful companion, listener, and lover. I mean, riveter. You say lover, I say screw her. All of that to learn you shouldn't respect the boundaries of your partner requests, otherwise you'll feel guilty. I don't know what the point of her story was. Coming in wearing a Pollock-inspired version of My House Moo Moo's, Sophia enters the kitchen, sharing that she's heard the news about Rose's move. Always one to bring the realness to any conversation, Sophia is not keen on the idea. That's because she can kind of relate. After she had her stroke a few years back, she had to relearn it all. Walking, eating, speaking. Devastated, Sophia just sat around and had a pity party. Then, Dorothy was fed up, and instead of coddling her ma, she pushed her. She pushed her to do the work, pushed her to try hard. And because of that, she did it, and she was able to be independent again. Granted, Lily's sight won't be coming back the way Sophia's walking and talking did, but the point is clear. She's going to have to learn how to do it, not have it done for her. Rose does what Rose does. She hears what needs to be done, but makes excuses as to why it doesn't fit her situation. Sophia gets in her face. You have to help your sister learn to help herself. Moved by Sophia's care for Rose's situation, Blanche compliments her. But don't think she's gone all soft on us. Sure, she likes and wants to help Rose, but more than anything, she wants her big bedroom. In this moment, we get another oh boy from Sophia when she says that in order to get that room, she would sell her own child to the gypsies. Gypsies, originating from Egypt, hence the name, is a population of about 12 million people spread mostly across Europe. Considered Roma, there are a lot of stereotypes and misjudgments about the Roma or gypsy people. There are also a lot of negative slangs as well, such as, I'll sell you to the gypsies, or being gypped out of something. Oh boy. It's probably been 15 minutes in sitcom time as we are now at the garage sale, except even though the house has a garage, the sale is being held on the lanai, meaning strangers are just walking to the side gate of the house in hopes of not being murdered. It goes back to your point, Coco.
2: It's, it's, it's not worth it <laughs> for like 50 bucks.
0: My, did your family ever host a garage sale? Never. My mom...
2: even as a Even as a baby, I said... No. I just held you up like, a little- were like, can we get
0: rid of your binky? And I, you're like, why? Yeah. A garage sale? Mm-mm. No.
2: Held up my little chubby pink fist, <laughs> shook my index finger back and forth. No way.
0: My mom had them frequently. Not frequently, but every couple years. Well, you're lucky you're alive.
2: They, yeah. Like a creep's not going to come by a garage sale and be like shopping for
0: kids. <laughs>
2: Steal you later.
0: For only being a day or two of planning, the ladies have a lot of junk out. Sophia, wearing her multicolored pastel house dress, is of course doing the best job of hustling her sales. When pushing a pitcher on a potential customer, she does what's expected and offers $1.50, in lieu of the $2 that's on the tag. Sophia, oh boys, with, this isn't Baghdad, that's because in markets, like a farmer's or Saturday, not grocery store, Prices are considered fluid in some Middle Eastern markets. So depending on social status, you might be able to make a bargain with a vendor. Or you could be like Sophia and tell the person to get the hell out of there. Being told to go to hell is actress Annie Abbott. This was her first credited role, and she is only listed as the woman. While only the woman here, she went on to work on Roseanne, Ally McBeal, General Hospital, The Ghost Whisperer, X-Files, and you know it, La, La. Arriving to the scene in another of her art teacher-wrapped smocks, but this time in yellow and white, is Dorothy, who is appalled by her mother's behavior. Although Sophia makes a pretty good point. Go shopping at a high-end store like Neiman Marcus and see if they treat you any better than that. They won't. In white pants, just like Dorothy, is Blanche, who is also wearing a white t-shirt with a textured light pink sweater over it. As she checks in with Dorothy about the progress of the sale, a man approaches them and offers $1 for Elvis Presley's salt and pepper shakers, which seems unreasonable as they could be collector's items, but similar ones are on eBay right now for about 20 bucks, so... Worth a fortune or not, the sentimental value is what keeps Blanche from selling them for a buck. For the day she bought them, she happened to have seen an Elvis impersonator walking around Graceland, Elvis's home, who was eating a burger and drinking a soda. So they were obviously a big deal. Hearing the passion in Blanche's voice, the guy ups his offer by a quarter. Dorothy reaches her hand out to take it, but Blanche will not tolerate such disrespect. The man unable to buy the salt and pepper shakers is being played by late actor Bill Gratton. He started small with bit parts on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Family Ties. He led a steady career of bit parts in everything from Frasier to Seinfeld, Blast from the Past, and E.R. And, of course, La La. Dorothy can't understand why Blanche won't sell her stuff, sending Blanche into an impassioned plea about the king, his music, his memories, and his seasonings. Not so much a plot whoopsie, but a we'll bring this back later and not be worried about continuity, Rose catches up with a potential customer who has picked up her teddy bear, Mr. Longfellow. He wasn't supposed to be out at the sale. Then she talks to and with her bear, and it's all very upsetting. But we'll get back to the bear another time. In this moment, Dorothy encompasses all of my emotions as a level three acquirer slash hoarder. When talking to her friends or when I'm talking to myself, she asks, what's the point of having a sale if we're going to be weird about getting rid of our stuff? In the same breath, a man appears asking about the cost of a hockey stick. Seeing as even today you can get a cheap one for 20 bucks, her immediate response of $1,100 is hilarious. Pointing out that she's being hypocritical, Dorothy starts to explain to Blanche that the stick is part of history because Bobby Hull, a hockey player considered to be one of the greatest of all time, had used it. Now, if it had been signed, she could sell it today for a few hundred bucks. It's funny that Rose isn't the one with the hockey stick or that Blanche isn't the one with the sports interest. This moment comes out of nowhere for Dorothy, but I guess it just goes to show we still have so much to learn about our girls. Buying the stick for a measly four fifty is actor Stuart Fratkin, or should I say man number two as he is listed in the credits. While he hasn't worked since 2016, he had roles on Malcolm in the Middle, That's So Raven, Quantum Leap, My Sister Sam, Baywatch, Doogie Houser, and you guessed it, Teen Wolf 2. Ow.
1: Jason Bateman (laughs) is Teen Wolf 2. Todd Howard is a regular guy. All right. Bye. With a couple of problems.
2: just hit me with a dead frog.
0: Luring the young shopper into the house to show him what oil to use on the stick, Blanche and Rose are left behind feeling suspicious of Dorothy's motives, especially Rose, who knows you should use wax on parched wood, not oil. Although, from what I could find, either work and waxes may be seen as more of a temporary solution, although it is recommended when specifically working on hockey sticks. Cutting back to the house, Dorothy and man number two are in a stick battle where Dorothy is bartering a price to buy the stick back, eventually landing on her paying him 25 bucks and he can never come back around there again. It's a deal. Except now Blanche and Rose have arrived to overhear the nonsense, forcing Dorothy to lie about the kid not wanting the stick and that they really should be nice and have a return policy, which apparently fell on a totally humorless audience as that really should have gotten more of a laugh than what it did, which was none at all. Blanche realizes they are all unhealthily attached to their junk, so they're just going to leave the garage sale unattended and close down for the day. I hope they didn't spend any money advertising. As Rose agrees with the ladies, she starts speaking for the bear again. I love when Dorothy gets unreasonably worked up, like in this case when she lets out a scream of please that you would only expect to hear in a horror movie. Then a plan is hatched, a plan that probably could have come together before all of this work of the garage sale while you still have a guest in your house. They will each put $20 in a pot and start a layaway plan for a new TV, which might take a while as TVs then were just about as expensive as they are now. Leaving the living room to inform the shoppers that the sale is over, Lily comes from the hallway and calls out for Rose. For once, she's actually asking for help to get to the couch. Once there, she asks for a glass of water. Things are clearly still kind of tense, but in a different way. Instead of Lily being stubbornly independent, she's now comfortably coddled. Rose went from asking permission to help to telling her she can't help with everything. Perhaps Rose moving in to help her isn't the right thing to do because she needs professional help that will lead to independence, not caregiving help that will lead to dependence. That's when Rose breaks the news that she won't be moving to Chicago to care for her. They're both upset. Rose is upset because she knows that moving in with her isn't what's best. Lily's upset because she feels betrayed by her own sister. It's a new day, and Lily's trip has come to an end, and she's already gone home. Rose, in her stunning red dress, will be going to Chicago for a week to help her sister out, only temporarily. Making a plan to let the girls know she's arrived safely, Rose says she'll call Collect. They can say she isn't home, and that's how they'll know. Now, children, let me tell you about Collect Calls. Calling Collect. You've got options. You can dial zero, like this guy.
1: Hi,
2: Mommy. I rode on the plane all by myself. Did I mention you'll be charged as much as you possibly can for this call?
1: Or... You can
2: dial 1-800-COLLECT. Here's how it works. Dial 1-800-COLLECT. Yeah, I just saved you some cash. You're welcome. Love you. Called Mom Collect, huh? You know, you could have saved up to 44% by dialing 1-800-COLLECT.
1: Can you find it in your heart to forgive me?
0: Back when there were landlines, you had to pay for a call. So you'd get a plan that had long distance or international if you called people out of the country, so on and so forth. Then collect calls came into the picture. If you couldn't pay the cost of the call, either because of your plan or maybe you're at a payphone, you could call a collect number and it would call who you're calling and it would say, you're receiving a collect call from, and then you would state your name. When you got really good at it, you could leave a whole message before the time was up. So it would go, you've received a call from. I'm at the movie theater where you pick me up at 7. Then you could just hang up and no one was charged. Otherwise, the charge of the phone call, which was always way more expensive than a regular plan, would go to the person accepting the call. These things were huge in the 90s. Do you remember all those jingles, Coco? C-A-L-L-A-T-T. <laughs> when they're like 1-800-CALL-COLLECT or something.
2: Yeah, I, f- I think that also, at least I have a memory of Chris Rock. I
0: think was in a commercial. I feel like in the mid late night from like 95 to 98, every huge celebrity was in Collect Call commercial.
2: They were they were just yeah, you couldn't get away from them. What a stupid time.
0: <laughs> I mean, this was the same era when Bruce Willis was a claymation puppet who was selling iced tea. So things were weird, man.
2: They didn't know what was going on. I drew a fun picture on my foot.
0: Now in a gray and black striped version of her art smock, Dorothy, along with Blanche in her purple top and yellow cardigan, have a seat on the couch, each with their books. When Ellen, I mean Rose, bursts through the front door, having forgotten her purse. When Blanche double checks that Rose feels okay with going, she starts to twaddle on about how she can't say no to her sister again. She said no already about living with her. She can't say no to a visit. Even though it's been two months since they've seen each other, Rose is nervous about being asked again to stay with Lily to care for her. Hence all the distractions and forgotten items that she keeps coming inside for. Shooing her out the door after her third visit, Dorothy says, Leave already. You've had more comebacks than Shirley McLean." Shirley MacLaine started out in the Alfred Hitchcock film, The Trouble with Harry, and had a fairly strong career before a slump in the 70s. She had one of her big comebacks with Terms of Endearment in 1983, then again with Steel Magnolias in 1990. Obviously, this was filmed before that. Needless to say, you can't keep Shirley MacLaine down, and she is still working and beloved to this day. Finally, getting Rose out the door, we follow a plane with Air Florida to her destination, Chicago. The actress playing the stewardess, or flight attendant, as we would now call her, is Donna Labrie. There isn't much listed about her, except that in her eight-year career, she worked on some classic shows like Falcon Crest, Hill Street Blues, Roseanne, Matlock, ALF, and funnily enough, Benson. Unsurprisingly, Rose is overly delightful with the flight attendant, thanking her for the pillow, except that was the other gal. The flight attendant she's speaking to gave her 10 packs of almonds, which is the most allowed, and a Dramamine, which is used to help with motion sickness. Holding up the walkway in a way that would make me lose my mind, I would be screaming, get out of my way, I want off this plane, Rose then asks for help finding the baggage claim, after thanking her once again for the plastic wings she was given. Surprising her sister at the airport is Lily and her service dog, Becky. The surprise wasn't just for fun, though, but it was to show her sister she was capable of getting there on her own and to apologize for how things were back in Miami. She was scared, angry, and bitter, and she was taking it out on the world. Because Rose wouldn't help, Lily realized she was out of options, so she got the help she needed to live an independent life. So the invite to Chicago wasn't to try to trick Rose into staying. It was to show her that she was right and to show her she was thankful. In a display of strength and independence, Lily has Rose take her arm as they start to walk out of the airport. Lily gets the last laugh of the episode, though. You think this is impressive. Wait until you see my driving.
2: Though I didn't find this episode to be the funniest and I thought Rose's characterization was kind of off a lot Mm -hmm. I thought that Lily the performance of Lily's character was really beautiful and really heartbreaking and uh, very honest performance and I'd never seen her uh, that actor perform uh, that kind of role before the makers of the Golden Girls had the confidence Mm. to do that plot in a sitcom and have it be real heavy
0: and yeah. that's really impressive. And it doesn't come off as a very special episode.
2: At first I was going to make that joke when we first started watching it today. Was that that's what it that's what I thought it was going to be because mm-hmm. I knew what it was what the premise was and the, and then the way that she was like, you know, touching the glasses and stuff like that it seemed like oh, we're going to like learn a special les- lesson, but it didn't feel that way at all. It just felt like a uh, a person coming to terms with their their life, like their health things and it, and it connected to me because I have uh, a mobility issue, mm-hmm. and we have a friend that is starting, it seems, to experience some sort of he- some level of hearing loss, mm-hmm. and those things are just starting to pile up on us. That's just the way it is. That's just life gets harder, and like that's something that all of us are going to have to deal with at some point. So, i I really appreciate the show for doing that. It's amazing that it's connecting to me, a person who was a baby when this was out. You know, right?
0: And well, it just, you know, oh, sorry. Go oh, ahead. No, no, no. It's just,
2: it's just, it's just wonderful. Go ahead. I
0: I think that that's. You worded that beautifully, as always, but I think that that's part of why the show has the love it has all these years later because those shows that did the sitcom thing and they did the very special and they made everything a big deal, those are dated and those are uninteresting. This is portrayed in such a real way and you laugh, you want to cry, you want to feel awkward and uncomfortable you know how would you handle it if your friend's sister was blind and almost caught your kitchen on fire yeah you would be frustrated but you'd want to be kind but you so
2: yeah the show record seems to recognize that life life is a is a very special episode there oh. are al- it's always happening that was gorgeous. there's no thank you there's no pause button you know mm-hmm. so
0: yeah and and they bring it in and they say yeah, we're going to do some sitcom stuff where within one day we have a garage sale, okay, that's fine. But to yeah, have to allow for that realness and allow to go to those places that I think you're right. I think it is kind of a bravery thing because it's really easy to make it kind of campy. And it's easy to make it very special and to be serious and, oh, we're so dramatic.
2: And to do a ton of jokes where they're moving stuff out of the way so they don't, you know. Mis- oh, so she yeah. doesn't, you know, it's like Mr. Magoo level jokes. Oh, yeah. And that's, that would just be embarrassing.
0: Other shows could have been a whole episode of, oh, boy, yeah. of just constant like yeah. puns or.
2: Oh, yeah. If this was who's the boss or Mr. Belvedere. Oh, Yeah.
0: Like, oh, our blind friend's here. You better look out. I mean, yeah. it'd be really bad stuff. Yeah. And again, that's why it's so timeless. Or because they, it's they just... made
2: jokes like, oh, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. <laughs> you, you know, oh, yeah. she can't see anything. Or yeah. the food looks awful. She won't mind.
0: Yeah. Instead, you have Blanche <clears throat> literally go, oh, you watch TV?
2: Yeah.
0: Because that's something I think most people would be curious about or want to know. And yeah. That's, say,
2: that's something that we know now, but maybe people didn't think that back then, you know? Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't. It's just that. It is. It's just exposure. Exposure to different people mm-hmm. expands your world and your mind and makes you a better person.
0: Yeah. And they always welcomed all differences. Yes. I mean, just let's just sit at the table and have dinner and we'll talk about stuff. But Dr. Jonathan Newman. Yeah. You know, they,
2: aside from the surprise and their embarrassment at their own behavior, mm-hmm. They were in all, immediately. Yeah, it's, they're
0: like, "Oh, okay, let's go have dinner."
2: Ah, uh, love that guy. I mean, I really, I wish.
0: <laughs> right? It's sad,
2: like I won't see him again. You know, I know. I wish he'd come back.
0: He is a great character.
2: Yeah. Anyways.
0: Yeah, that's the beauty of the show. I mean, they, as we go on, we're going to be dealing with drug addiction, um, HIV exposure, uh, people, you know, immigration, and surrogates and i mean so many different topics and they always handle it this way which is like it's part of life and you can laugh at it to get through it but you also need to deal with it and that's the beauty of it can i ask you a personal question only did you feel because of your mobility stuff did you feel any kind of sense of Maybe similarity or relatability to how, especially that scene, I think that's so powerful when Lily and Rose are in her room and she she isn't crying and she's not yelling, but you can hear the emotion.
2: The part where she's talking about her, whatever top or dress she has, and that's the only one that she can remember. The idea of having, just having your memories and to know that those memories and the accuracy of them would be just fading every day. Mm-hmm. You'd forget what everyone's face looked like. You'd forget what a dog looks like. You'd mm-hmm. just forget. Um,
0: Did you feel a connection to that as far as like the frustration or the I don't need help or... Yeah, well, I
2: I mean, I don't because I'm like... Yeah, uh, yeah obviously. I you're... love help.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say because your, your needs are a lot less than that of a blind person. Exactly. It's not like you have... You're not, you know, uh, in a wheelchair or anything like yeah. that, but...
2: But a little a little help... Uh, it is nice yeah Um, but yeah no I do connect to that because people don't know how to act around you and people are awkward and you know they notice everybody notices but not everybody says something you know Mm. Um, but I'm I'm also used to that because I I grew up as an overweight person Mm. and a shy person so it's just like it really is just like all things in life it's more of the same it's just more or less intense than it was before (laughs) that's it (laughs) life what are you going to do about it just do it man do it till it's done that's what i say all right all right all right <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great when your abilities and independence change maybe because of an accident a health condition or age it's easy to become frustrated and stubborn especially if you were used to living as independent a life as lily But life changes like that don't have to cause you to lose your independence, it just changes it. Even with the loss of sight, hearing, walking, you can still live a full, healthy, happy life. It'll just be different. Acceptance of both your new condition and of help when needed is the first step to a life you love. If you're the loved one of someone facing lifestyle changes, acceptance is something for you to grapple with as well acceptance of your loved one's new situation, and accepting a level of responsibility and caretaking that meets their needs and yours as well. No one has to give up their life to take care of someone or to live as a person with limited sight. Love, support, patience, and kindness go much further in helping a family with ability changes than frustration, isolation, coddling, or Blanche's sassy attitude. Asking for or receiving help, and this goes for everyone, doesn't make you weak. I'll say it again for myself. Getting help doesn't make you a weak person. Not being able to help someone to the capacity they ask doesn't make you a bad person. Saying no is not the same as saying I don't love you. In fact, it usually means the complete opposite. My thanks again to Swatha Nadakumar with the American Council of the Blind. If you or someone you love is living with sight loss, please visit acb.org for resources and support. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we sing the country blues with our first visit from Big Daddy. what I did?
2: Well... I forgot to press record. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: is Buzz Off. <laughs> Maybe there's like a foreign person named Buzz Off, like AUF or something. Probably. Hello, my name is Buzz Hello Off. this Buzz Off. <laughs> Everyone Get away me to... <laughs> from me. Blanche is back with the lemonade. Was that a hard one? I think so. Who? Get so. in the zone. Daddy zone.
2: I saw an IMAX documentary about the national parks, and it inspired me. To see all of the national parks of which I have seen none.
0: <laughs> That's what I'll get from my grandfather. A chunk of a missile.
2: Did you say something about a chunky missile? <laughs> you know I love chunks.
0: Kleigen Smith,
2: Clygensmith, Smith. Oh no. You said it three times. The Klagensmith. <laughs> the Kleigen
0: Smith is coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's her me, the <laughs> This actually led Sophia to think that Benson, the titular character from the sitcom about a butt. <laughs> 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 My lips got stuck. A sitcom about a
2: butt. <laughs> Wouldn't watch. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Ellie Ewing. Ellie, Ellie Ewing, Ewing, Ellie Ewing. Uh, uh, oh, Ellie Ewing.
0: Come and rock me, Ellie Ewing.
2: <laughs> Lily's outfit. Uh, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Those are my hot tips from a man who has never done one (laughs) and is just being sidelined by a funky dunk right now. I think I might die from this one. Do I sound cool?
0: Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Don't run away from your problems. Yeah. Because they're
0: inside of you.
2: often always be my
0: sisters is written hosted and created by alicia holland produced and edited by josh mccullough always be my sisters is a cascade media production you'll always be my sister